Hello, this is Dr. David Friedman, host of To Your Good Health Radio. The topic of poop is an embarrassing subject for many, and for others, it's the butt of funny jokes. But it's also an indication of how healthy or unhealthy you are. The color, shape, size, smell, and frequency of your poo can be first-line indicators to diagnosing many diseases. Today we have Dr. Anish Seth, the author of the book, What's your poo telling you? Don't go anywhere. On today's show, we get the scoop on poop. And it all starts now. It's To Your Good Health Radio with number one best-selling author and renowned wellness expert, Dr. David Friedman. Changing lives just for the health of it. Our next guest holds a medical degree from Brown University and is a gastroenterologist at Princeton, New Jersey. He's written articles for dozens of scientific peer-reviewed journals, including the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine and the American Journal of Gastroenterology. He's a sought-after lecturer, and he's spoken at Yale and Brown University Medical School. His television appearances and print features include The Doctors, Good Morning America, The Rachel Ray Show, Fox News, Consumer Reports, Oprah Magazine, and Self Magazine, just to name a few, here to discuss the power of poo. Welcome best-selling co-author of What's Your Poo Telling You, Dr. Anish Sheth. Thanks for having me, Dr. Friedman. Pleasure to be here. Oh, great to have you with us. Now, they originally had your segment scheduled to be the first one, but I told them it would be more appropriate to have you be the guest on the number two segment, since that's what the show's about. And when it comes to writing, (laughs) when it comes to a book on number two, my number one question, of course, is what inspired you to write this? Yeah, I think, you know, if we think back to back in the day as a, as a children's book, Tara Gomi wrote a book called Everybody Poops. And I think that sums it up. This is a universal aspect of life and of health. Uh, and for many generations, decades, uh, it was relegated to the outhouse, so to speak. But, uh, you know, we now know, as you alluded to in your introduction, that, yes, we can have a chuckle over our digestive health. But at the same time, uh, it can tell us a lot about our overall well-being. Right. You know, and most people, you know, they do their job, they wipe and flush. And in your book, you share how it's important for us to take time to look at our poop before we flush. The size, color, shape could give us vital information about our health. Share with us a few examples of what your poo's telling you. Yeah. So I I think to start with something we can all relate to, which is not really a health concern, but just shows you the types of information. So the biggest thing I think on a day-to-day basis that looking at your bowels will do for you is it will tell you about your diet. And I think that that's really the main thing. We hopefully are not seeing blood in our stools on a frequent basis or or having serious medical issues. But how do you know if you're getting enough fiber in your diet? You know, are your stools soft? Are they cohesive? Uh, Are they in little pebbles? Uh, Are they really loose and watery? These things tell you a lot about what goes in. And I think if you're eating healthy, if you're getting enough fiber, if you're exercising, drinking enough water, there's no better way to know that and to get the immediate feedback by looking at what's in the bowl. Yeah, I have patients who literally have three to four bowel movements a week and think that's normal. How many BMs should we have per day? What is the normal? Yeah, so that's about the lower limit of normal. They did a study about 40, 50 years ago on 70 to 100 uh, normal, quote-unquote, patients without any issues, and they found that the range is actually quite broad. So as frequently as three times a day to as infrequently as once every three days can be considered normal. I think you've hit on an important point here, which is that everybody has their normal. 
And the main reason we want people to pay attention to what comes out is you want to know if there's been a change in your normal pattern. If you're somebody that's gone, you know, once every day your entire life and now you don't go for four, five, six days, there's clearly something wrong. Whereas for somebody else, that may not be a big deal. So I think really looking at the change from day to day, from week to week is really the best way to tell if there's something going wrong. Right. Good point. And what about the complete opposite problem? Someone who poops too many times per day, when does that become a reason for concern? Yeah, that's sometimes an issue with diet. And, and I think we talk about things like celiac disease, you know, a gluten intolerance, which can go years and years and even a decade or more without being diagnosed. One of the ways these conditions can present is with some low-grade, frequent, loose bowel moves. I have patients who said they can't recall the last time they actually had a formed stool in the toilet bowl. That's clearly abnormal. And so we'd look at their diet. We'd look at what other medications they take, you know, do an exhaustive exam to see if there really is something wrong. But, you know, persistent loose bowel movements, just like persistent constipation on the extremes, there's almost always a reason for it. Got it. What about size? I know sometimes people poop these little tiny rabbit turds, and sometimes it's as long as a banana, while others, as you mentioned, have looser stools. What are the significance of the size and consistency of our poop? Should we look down there and see a banana and be happy? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, the, the classic ideal stool is is described as a singular S-shaped uh, sort of piece of stool in the bottom, resting sort of comfortably in the bottom of the toilet bowl. And there's some truth to that, because if you have an elongated, cohesive, soft bowel movement, that really means you're getting enough fiber. You take the pebble poo, as you alluded to earlier, it looks like buckshot in the toilet bowl. That's really a sign that somebody's not getting enough fiber. Somebody's eating a lot of red meat, processed foods, uh, and we would really ask them, you know, you really got to ramp up the fruits and vegetables, um, to go along with that, to get to sort of about 25 grams of fiber per day. And that really usually, usually takes care of it. Yeah. Would also, if they have those little pebble poos, would that be an indication of maybe they're uh, dehydrated? They're not getting enough water? Does water have a role yeah. in getting that nice stool? Yeah, it's a good point. You know, if you eat if you eat fiber, but you're deficient in water, it actually can sometimes make your stool even harder. So yeah, what you need is, if you imagine soaking some legumes or some beans or sprouts, in a bowl of water overnight, we know that they swell up and become soft and sort of engorged. And, and the same sort of thing happens in the GI tract. If you have a high fiber diet, but you're not getting enough water, you're not going to get that pillowy softness to the stool that I think, you know, we all want. Uh, so yeah, combining, you know, at least eight, eight, eight ounce glasses of water with a diet high in fiber is, is, is sort of the best way to get to that ideal stool. Yeah, that's great. I think the only thing we haven't covered, covered is color. I know that it's a big scare if people see blood on their toilet paper. They immediately get concerned that they might have cancer. But share how bright red blood maybe is not such a concern and what to look for when blood is a concern. Yeah, it's a great point. So blood on the toilet paper in isolation is, is almost always an otherwise healthy individual, a sign of just some hemorrhoidal bleeding, irritation. And I think if you recall and think back, and say, you know what, uh, I had a little bit too much spicy food the night before, or my stool was a little bit hard and maybe irritated the hemorrhoids. If it's a one-off um, episode of bleeding on the toilet paper, you're probably good to just keep an eye on things. But, you know, if it's persistent, if it's a change, especially if it's accompanied by other things, which is, you know, a change in your bowel habits. So you're having more difficulty going if you're having abdominal pain other signs along with the blood in the stool. That's when we really get concerned. And 
And I think the other point is, you know, the most feared consequence of blood in the stool is that people fear colon cancer. And I think that when people ask me, well, what are the signs of colon cancer? The biggest thing I tell them is the most common sign is no sign at all, which is why uh, starting at age 45 or 50, depending on uh, which society guidelines you follow, you know, everybody, male, female, should have a screening colonoscopy because you don't want to get to the point where you're seeing frequent blood in the stool because sometimes then it's too late. You've already developed colon cancer. Right. And you mentioned a, a common cause of the blood is hemorrhoids. I'm glad you brought that up because I have a question for you. Maybe you can answer. Why do they call them hemorrhoids when they should be called asteroids? <laughs> Doesn't that have a... <laughs> there you right? go. That's Actually, a better name. I haven't heard that one before. See, I'm I got a new to one. Use that one. Gonna use that one. There you go. What, what actually causes hemorrhoids, and when when should somebody seek medical attention if they have a hemorrhoid? Yeah, so there's two types of hemorrhoids. Uh, there's internal and external ones, and they sort of present and behave differently. So most people who have internal hemorrhoids will have what you just described: painless uh, blood uh, on the toilet paper when they wipe, when they have a hard stool, for instance, or spicy foods. But but internal hemorrhoids don't cause the classic discomfort, irritation, itching. Those are uh, caused by external hemorrhoids. And so I think it depends on what's happening. If you have somebody with really large hemorrhoids, it's affecting the way they go to the bathroom. They're seeing bleeding on a frequent basis. That's when they should get those treated. And the external ones, those are the ones that are a nuisance. Those are the ones that people have to use prep, you know, uh, topical steroid creams for and, and other things like that. So the external ones really should be treated when it seems like every day or every week you're having recurrent discomfort and itching and, and things of that sort. Yeah, if someone has a, I just thought about this, someone has a hemorrhoid problem, wouldn't the quality of toilet paper matter? Wouldn't this harder toilet paper make you bleed more? Maybe, or do you recommend just dampening your toilet paper before wiping or wiping? Yeah, so wet, so wet toilet paper is always a good idea. I think one of the big mistakes actually people make is there's this sort of focus on cleanliness, hey, which, which I agree with, but people have a tendency to overwipe. And so, you know, if you have good bowel habits and you're fully evacuating your stool, you should only need to wipe once or twice. Actually, in our book, we talk about the holy grail of the cleanup is, is called the clean sweep, which is where you go to the bathroom, you wipe once, and there's no residue whatsoever on the toilet paper. But Despite that, many people will overwipe, and I think that has a tendency to irritate, especially the external hemorrhoids. So if you have hemorrhoidal problems, make sure you're not overwiping. You can use wet toilet paper, or you can actually get unscented uh, baby wipes. Um, you know, and in, mo in, in most of the world, actually, uh, people use bidets, so they're not even using paper. And, and actually, some people feel like that's a better and more gentle way to clean the area. Yeah, good information. What, what We can't talk about doo-doo without bringing up the topic of a turd's wind beneath the wings, which is farting. For our listeners with excessive flatulence or wives threatening to divorce their husbands, do you have any tidbits or helpful yeah. information? Yeah, it can go the other way, too, Dr. Friedman. So let's, let's, let's not blame all the men here. Sometimes women are just as uh, culpable here. So, woman, Hey, women, uh, don't yeah, fart. So no, this. <laughs> Yeah, maybe not. Actually, you know what? You're right. Actually, the studies show that on average, men will f pass gas approximately 14 times in a 24-hour period. Wow. And for women, it's about 10 to 12. So you're actually right. The men actually pass more gas. So look, just like going to the bathroom, passing gas is uh, a fact of life. It's something that, uh, again, because of the way we have evolved as you know, as society, we have, again, tended to try to stifle the expulsion of gas, especially in public situations. 
But ultimately, this is a byproduct of digestion. So when we eat certain foods, especially those good, healthy, high-fiber foods or certain carbohydrates, the body undergoes a digestive process, and, 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 and as a result, we form gases, carbon dioxide, sulfide, methane at times, and the gas has got to go somewhere. And so usually a couple hours after a meal, you're going to have to, you know, maybe have a bowel movement, but almost certainly you're going to have to pass gas. And so I think, again, if it's happening within reason, it's not particularly foul-smelling. Your wife is not threatening a divorce. There's probably <laughs> nothing to worry about if there's been a change in that. The biggest thing we see as people get older is, is the development of lactose intolerance. And this can start very insidiously where, you know, previously you could have an entire bowl of ice cream and be okay. And then as we get older, you know what, a half a bowl of ice cream is kind of all we can take because we can't digest it. And so if you're eating things like ice cream, dairy products, uh, gluten for that matter, which now your body's not able to fully digest, that's where you start to notice some abdominal discomfort, bloating, increased gas formation. And so there, the first thing you do is just kind of look back at your diary for the next last day or two and, and try to eliminate the problematic foods. Yeah. In your opinion, what's the best type of diet for the colon health? Is it paleo, plant-based, keto, somewhere in the middle? What have you found? Uh, I don't think there's any question that it's a plant-based diet. So I think if you look at uh, the biggest things that we struggle with in, let's say, in, in a Western country like the United States, it's constipation, it's diverticulitis, and it's colon cancer. And if you look at studies, population studies, all three of those issues are much less common in in, um, in countries and cultures which are a plant-based diet. So I think for gut health, and, and arguably for overall health, but specifically for gut health, there's no question that a, a plant-based diet is uh, is number one. That's great. When it comes to plant-based diet, I get these, so many of these um, experts are saying stay away from grains. And for decades, whole grains were considered healthy and reduced the risk of colon cancer. Now they're saying get off them because they contribute to cancer. Are grains good or bad for our gut health? Yeah, I think in moderation, they're good. I think you want complex, you know, you want whole wheat, you don't want processed sort of, uh, you know, white flour. I don't think anybody's ever shown a benefit to that. Uh, I think whole grains, uh, in the way that they were designed to be consumed without the processing that, that unfortunately under, that we undergo now uh, is, is very good for the GI tract. Actually, cereal-based diets in other cultures are also a great source of fiber in addition to plants, fruits, vegetables, nuts, things of that sort. So I'm a big advocate for cereals. Uh, I think it's an easy, um, healthy way to get, um, you know, about a third to a half of your daily fiber uh, recommendation there, so I would not uh, I would not shun uh, whole wheat and whole grains. Great, I know you mentioned something interesting in your book. I saw it said that the South Asians poop about three times more than other folks due to their diet. Share with us the reason behind this, and does this mean that they're considered healthier? Yeah, so the transit time is dependent on the transit time is basically defined as I mean in. Back in college, just in, in the frat houses, this would be called the corn race, which is when you eat corn on the cob and then you see how long it takes to come out in your stool. That's kind of a rough measure of how long it takes things to move through your GI tract. And when you look at that, that's directly related to how frequently you go to the bathroom. So if your transit is faster, you're going to go more frequently. And this, again, is completely based on, on dietary intake. So if you're having, if you eat a high-fiber diet and in some South Asian diets, Actually, some, some sub-Saharan African cultures as well, 
they get upwards of 30 to 40 grams of fiber per day, which is approximately actually three to three and a half times what the average U.S. diet. The average U.S. diet contains about 10 grams of dietary fiber. So that discrepancy in fiber is actually directly related to how frequently you go to the bathroom. And so the more fiber you eat, the more things are being flushed through. And there's this theory, which I don't think has ever been proven, which is that the quicker things move through your system, the less time they have to sit and ferment in the colon. And that actually may be one of the things that causes uh, colon polyps or colon cancer when you have things sitting in the colon for days on end. Um, it's sort of thought to be unhealthy for the cells of the inner lining of the colon. And so that's one of the theories by which, uh, which explains rather the lower, lower rates of uh, colon cancer and diverticulosis in other cultures. Right. And you, uh, you mentioned briefly about corn showing up. I, you remind me, I haven't thought about this in years, but when I was in fifth grade, this guy came, the kid came out of this uh, bathroom named Jimmy and he brought us all in there and he pointed and there was corn. Like he said, I chewed it up, but it's like back together in my poop. And he went on and on and on. This guy, Jimmy kept talking about this and talk. So we came up with this song and it said, it went like this, Jimmy crapped corn and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. But, but why is that? Why yeah, does corn, well, why does corn show up? Yeah, it speaks to the different types of fiber that we ingest. And there are certain fibers that are insoluble, which is basically means indigestible. So fiber that contains, say, cellulose. Cellulose is not, we have no enzymes in our current digestive system to break that down. And so you get the, the nutritional benefit from the inside of the corn kernel, but the outer shell of the corn kernel is insoluble and so will pass through the GI tract uh, essentially unchanged. And that's a completely normal phenomenon. That's right. I'm curious, you know, when it comes to the touchy topic, but sometimes fun of doo-doo, I'm curious, did uh, your publisher end up, uh, you know, thinking anything crossed the line and didn't allow it to be in the book? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And it speaks to sort of what, you know, Josh Richmond, my co-author, and I really set out to do when we wrote the first book on this topic 10 years ago, which was that there was uh, a lot of information or say misinformation on the potty humor sort of frat house sort of tone side of things. And then there was really erudite sort of medical health sort of overwhelming amounts of information as part, part of your GI tract. But there was no single book that took the, 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 the humorous side of poo and combined it with real medical information. And we were just determined from the beginning to walk the line so that, yes, you know, kids who are eight years old could read this book and people who are 80 years old could read this book and that they would, again, embrace the humor of the topic, but also learn something. And so I would have to say, no, overall, if anything, we were very conservative in terms of how we, you know, treated the topic. And we wanted this to be as, I mean, again, we're talking about poo, so granted, but we want it to be as tasteful as possible. That's great. I, I got to ask you, what's your opinion on probiotics? I wouldn't be able to hear hear it from people saying, why don't you ask my probiotics? Do they aid in healthy bowel movements in the gut? And if so, what kind do we get? I'm a big proponent. Yeah. So I'm a big proponent of probiotics. I think, you know, let's face it. Um, we all try to eat healthy. We try to exercise, minimize alcohol, get seven to eight hours of sleep at night, but life gets in the way and we travel, we have busy schedules. And so I think probiotics are really good at filling in the gaps where some of those things are not ideal. So probiotics, and which probiotics is a sort of a more controversial topic, but as supplements to help with, say, 
irregular bowel movements, occasional constipation, occasional diarrhea, occasional gas or bloating, you know, things that tend to come and go based on our, you know, how healthy we're being. I think probiotics can really kind of level that out, smooth out the GI tract. And I'm a big proponent, say, for instance, when traveling, it helps. Some of the probiotics have been shown to help prevent travelers' diarrhea. But I think just even the occasional GI upset that comes from being in a different time zone and eating different foods, probiotics can go a long way. That's great. I know gut disorders are becoming an epidemic. There's more people now suffering from food intolerance, irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's than ever in history. What do you attribute to being the cause of so many people's unhealthy guts? My theory is that these chemicals and these pesticides and these obesogens and BPAs we're, we're being subjected to that's messing up our microbiomes. Is there any truth to that? That's probably part of it. Uh, I think ultimately you still can't ignore the, the fact that our diets uh, are not ideal. And I think if we ate locally, uh, non, no, you know, foods without preservatives, as you said, without pesticides, without hormones, if we ate the way we were sort of evolved to eat, which is you eat what you sort of gathered or caught that day and you didn't right. stick it in a freezer for two months or you didn't, you know, Im- you know, imbue it with, you know, other preservatives, I think that would explain a lot. Uh, but I think, you know, Time and stress plays a big deal. I think stress is a huge contributor to irritable bowel syndrome. I'll, I'll see patients who feel great uh, on the weekends, but you know Monday through Friday they say that they have a lot of gastrointestinal issues, and you sort of dig a little deeper and you figure out they're unhappy at work, and they have an hour and a half drive each way or commute into you know into the city, and they're not sleeping well. I mean, all of those things are going to take a toll on all aspects of health, but I think the immediate effect is on the GI tract. And so, uh, you know, we have to work within our our, our schedules, but I I definitely see a big, big role of, uh, of just daily, constant stress on the body. Right. So the key is to eat clean, get away from all these chemicals, antibiotics, hormones and stuff that could be irritating. But yeah, you bring up a good point about stress, because if you got bad news, the first place you feel it is where your gut. Right. If you get pulled over by a cop and you know, oh, this is the ticket, I can lose my license. Yep. You don't feel it in your brain. You feel a pain in your gut. <laughs> so your gut really yeah. easy. And that's a great example. And that's a great and that's what, what, what I tell. I tell patients that's exactly what you just said, which is that that's an acute stress that you feel immediately. Now, just pretend that stress was 10% of that, but that's going on every waking hour, every day of the of the week. Eventually, that takes a toll on the GI tract. And there's an interesting study which was done on medical students in the 1950s where they did uh, balloon distension in the rectum. And they had medical students say, well, how painful is it when I inflate the balloon for 20 cc's of air or 50 cc's of air? And then they had half. The, they told half the medical students that while they were putting the balloon in there, they found a mass in the rectum. And they did the same experiment. And when the when the medical students rated their level of discomfort, the ones that were told that there was something wrong, their pain reporting, self-reported pain with the same exact stimulus of a balloon was twice that of the other group. So it just shows you that psychological stress directly affects our pain perception and probably the sensitivity of the GI tract to various stimuli. And uh, so I think, you know, things like, you know, yoga, acupuncture, daily exercise, all of these things have been studied and have been found to be effective in things like irritable bowel syndrome. 
Yeah, it's a good point. I see a lot of students that that have bad diarrhea during finals, and it's the stress. It's you know they're just they're stressed, and if they fail that, they're not going to get to the next college or next week. So there's some big basis. I think that we're really exploring these microbiomes and how they really are emotional. Even even your decisions, they say trust your gut, and they're saying you know there's some truth to that because your gut actually has some emotional components of our decision making. Mm-hmm. So I I think there's really a big future of these microbiomes, and and you started it first with your book. I think you got the the basis of it. So it's fantastic. In the two minutes we have left, is there anything else you'd like to share about what our poo is telling us? No, I just think that, you know, I'll end with one lighthearted note and then one more serious note. So the lighthearted note is, you know, we talk about something called pooforia in our book, which is one of my favorite entries in, in the book, which is, you know, tongue in cheek here, obviously, but it really speaks to sort of the, 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 the factors that go into the perfect bowel movement. And, you know, we've all had that experience where we get up from a toilet and we feel light on our feet, like we can conquer the world. And and what that tells you is the body is really programmed and has evolved to reward healthy digestive habits. And, and we talked about fiber and water and exercise. Uh, and so that's one thing that we all strive for. We're not going to have pooforias every day of the week, but at least if we keep our head in the right direction, uh, we can sort of hopefully improve our bowel habits. And the second thing is that, you know, not to become alarmist. So whenever we talk about digestive health, you had alluded to, uh, blood in the stool. We talk about changes in your bowel habits, a little bit of abdominal cramping. You know, these things that are short-lived for a day or two uh, usually are related to diet or stress or something. And really, the, the main thing that would really cause me to tell someone to pick up the phone and call their doctor is if you see persistent changes. So something doesn't go away in a day or two, that's when you really want to talk to the doctor. But, you know, to leave you with one thing you mentioned it earlier, the most important thing is to look before you flush And if you do that, eat a healthy diet, I think everything else is going to be straightforward. Great information. Now, most guests would take this the wrong way, but thank you for such a crappy interview today. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you very much. Great. To get your copy of Dr. Sheth's book, What's Your Poo Telling You? You want to go to drstool.com. And if you heard Dr. Sheth share something today that somebody you know needs to hear, send them a link to this podcast. It's available at toyougoodhealthradio.com, also on radiomd.com. And while you're there, peruse our podcast library. Share segments of interest with friends, family, coworkers, and on social media. This information is too important to keep to yourself. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes. Stay up to date with me and social media on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Dr. David Friedman on Instagram. I'm at Health Radio Doc. More to come. Stay tuned and stay well.